0: Great to have you here today, people watching all around the world and even in Melbourne, people who can't be here today, who are part of Hope City Church. So good to have you watching today. Why don't we give them all a great hand, let them hear that we love them. So good to have you here. We're in the house of the Lord and the Holy Spirit is here. The spirit of revelation and understanding is here and he wants to bless you today. How many people have got their hearts open for a mighty, empowering word from the Lord today? That's awesome, awesome, awesome. Fantastic. Well, last week we spoke about the greatest battle in history, about how man lost his authority, man and woman lost their authority in the garden, their right to administer the seven faces of God in all society, and how Jesus, both in the wilderness as a man and at the cross on behalf of mankind, Won back the authority that we lost. And now, because of Jesus, we have the authority, because we're in Christ Jesus, to take back all that Adam lost. We have the authority to stand against the enemy and say, I want the keys, I've got the keys, and I want my Father's house back. Yeah. The earth belongs to the Lord's. And so we walk every day with an understanding that we have authority on this earth. We represent our Father on earth. Every street we walk down, every school we go to, every shop we go to, we walk in the authority as the sons and daughters of God. Church, today you have great authority to administer the Father's will on earth. Let me say again, the earth does not belong to the devil. Should I say it again? The earth does not belong to the devil. He's being cast out from heaven. He has no authority over your life. When you come and administer his kingdom, he cannot resist you because you have all power and all authority. So there's none left for the enemy, is there? Because Jesus got it all. A lot of Christians are intimidated by the devil. He's overrated because all authority and all power has been given to the church. We are the mightiest force on the planet, our biggest challenge is just discovering how great we are. Say to yourself, I'm great, because I'm, I'm, I'm in Christ. I agree with you today, you are great. So today we want to continue that series on looking at God's heart to restore the nations. Lester Summerall some of you may know him, he said, Very few Christians advance beyond their first revelation. Did you hear that? Very few Christians advance beyond their first revelation. In other words, they get saved and that's about it. They park there. That's where their understanding of God and the kingdom ends. But I don't know about you, but I'm passionate to fully embrace all that Jesus won at the cross. Aren't you? I want more. You want more? So very quickly before I get into my message, this is how we teach here at church, that when we come into the kingdom, you see here, we have a revelation of Jesus, identification. He identified with us. We heard that at communion today. He took on our sin, we got his righteousness. We come into right standing with the Lord, and it's amazing. We're welcomed into the family, and all we need to do is ask. Very clever. And then you see in the second stage, and see, most Christians stay at this first stage. They get born again. Jesus does an amazing work in their life. They're in the family, but they're just taking up space. But God wants so much more, so much more. Jesus is passionate about this, and I'm after you. If you're listening today or here today, and I don't think there's too many people like that here today, if any, I want to move you up that ladder. Because there's a purpose and a plan for your life that goes beyond just your rescue and your salvation, as great as that is. God's not willing that any should perish. And by far the greatest miracle is that somebody gets born again, out of the kingdom of darkness into light. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning. The second stage is identity. That that our Father in heaven wants to transform us as individuals. He wants to take you from... A broken person into a whole person. So we're welcomed into the family. Now that the, the pursuit of the Father is that we would be made whole. So we seek the Lord. We have to lay down our agenda for his agenda, our understanding about who we are, for his understanding about who we are. You know what, what we perceive ourselves to be is not what God perceives ourselves to be. And remember I've told you many times that when we go to heaven, the Bible says everything about us will be tested by fire. And only what he thinks about us will remain. And so we want that fire to be very small in our life. I want to discover what God sees when he sees me. I don't want other people's labels and opinions. I don't want my own labels and opinions. I want his label and opinion. I don't want to hide under a false identity of insecurity, intimidation, fear. So many people in the body of Christ are living a lie about themselves. So I want to say, Father... When I see you, what is it that you see? What do I see about you? What do you see about me? And that happens in a love relationship. He begins to love me into wholeness. I don't want to live life broken. I don't want to live life intimidated. I don't want to come to church and not being able to worship and just just be myself because I'm so fearful about what other people think. I don't want to live according to what man sees. I, want, I don't want to live the, my whole life and get to the end and realize I never discovered God's purpose for my life. And Let me say to you today, God has an amazing plan and purpose for your life. Yeah. So we seek the Lord. Lord, transform me. Make me whole. Make me the person that you want me to be. But we don't stop there. We go onto this third stage, which is being identical to Jesus. <gasps> could we say that? Yes, we could, because he says that we are now in Christ Jesus. He says, greater works will you do, because I go to the Father. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Everything that Jesus was, he came to be an example of man, not just to be an example for man. He came to show us who we could be, who we are. And so at this third stage, we begin to partner with Holy Spirit in the transformation of nations. So much of the body of Christ is waiting for Jesus to come and fix the earth. You know, we believe in the millennium, a thousand-year reign, where Jesus is going to come back to earth and fix what we couldn't fix. We're waiting on him, and he's waiting on us. It's the great spiritual Mexican standoff. (laughs) Who will blink first? So we begin to knock. We begin to wrestle. For all that Jesus won on the cross, we say, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, this is your earth. And so we're beginning to wrestle and contend spiritually for what Jesus died for on the cross. He will be rewarded for his suffering. And the reward of Jesus is you and I functioning as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We begin to get a worldview. See, welcome into the family. Wholeness into the family, then we begin to get a worldview. It changes the way we think. Most Christians are introspective, they're self conscious, they're focused on themselves, and there's a place for that when you're broken. But God wants to turn our eyes from out towards Him to get what is on your heart. What is it that you're seeing when you look at the nations today? The eyes of the Lord are roaming right across the earth, looking for men and women who have this heartbeat that says, God what is it that you are feeling and seeing when you look at the nations let me tell you god does not see the nations as a hopeless case we're going to see that today so we progress along this this spiritual ladder as it were from getting born again to being made whole to being partners in the kingdom where are you on that ladder and let me say about that, that, those three levels, every believer is getting fresh revelation in all those realms. You don't nail one and go to the next. It's constant revelation in the three. Restoring the nations. Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1 verse 5. He, Habakkuk says, look among the nations and watch. Are you watching the nations today? Be utterly astounded. The message says, brace yourselves for a shock. You ready for a shock? Orlando, are you ready for a shock? For listen to what the Lord says. For I'm about to work a work in your days which you would not believe even though you were told. Did you hear that? Habakkuk says God's about to do a work in the nations that is going to so astound you and shock you that even though God's pre-warned you and told you how great, you would not believe it, even though you were told. It's like, I can't believe that God is doing this. Who could believe that God could change a nation like he has? This is what Habakkuk is seeing." In our day and age, he's seen entire nations transformed. Give the Lord a hand. Isaiah 40 verse 15 tells us that God is not intimidated by the nations. I've got to admit, I'm intimidated at times by the nations. I look at nations. I look at our own nation. And I think, God, how could you... I know it sounds strange... But how could you change this nation? When we see the onslaught of of demonic powers coming against all that stands for righteousness, we feel this wave after wave eroding every standard that, that has been established in this nation. We think in our hearts, God, could you ever change this nation? We need to know today and declare today that God is not intimidated by the nations. He's not intimidated by what the devil's doing in the nation of Australia. God is not fearful of the enemy's plans. Amen? Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded like a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. He's not saying he doesn't love the nations. He's just bringing perspective. You know the problem you've got with the nations, Andrew? They're like a drop in the bucket for me. Get some perspective. The hosts of heaven are more than able to get the job done. I've had a dream uh, a number of years ago where I saw God send multitudes of angels. They came on a bus, bus after bus, onto my property Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of angels in business suits, laughing and rejoicing and leading away those that had caused such chaos in the planet, on the, in the nations. Particularly for me, it was in the realm of business. He was leading in chains, demonic presence that had taken captive that which belonged to the Lord. Let me tell you, God is about to release in this day hosts of heaven that will shift What needs to be shifted? It may look impossible for man, but it's not impossible for God. God's about to send you reinforcements so you can get the job done. Give the Lord a hand. You know that crazy boss that seems like he's demon or she's demon possessed? God can shift that. God can take care of every demonic force that's come against you. Every stronghold in government, business, education, God is able. One man, one woman with the host of heaven is a majority. Elijah proved that. Elisha proved that. We are not to be intimidated. You need to realize today that when you go out into the marketplace, you bring with you the angels of heaven, and they are just waiting to heed the voice of the Lord. They're saying, let me at it. Begin to understand you have authority. You are a king in your dominion. And as you begin to release the word of the Lord, angels are released on assignment. Ha! Ah, don't you feel good about that? We can turn the tide. Jesus is not in therapy today, he's not worried, he's not anxious. The Bible says where sin abounds. Has anyone seen any sin this week on the planet, in the nations, in the media? This is what the scripture says where sin abounds, grace abounds, superabounds all the more. So, what's God saying? You bring devil all your garbage, your resistance, your sin, and my grace, my favor, my ability on the church will superabound all that you can do. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where resistance abounds, God's favor on your life abounds all the more. Andrew, you don't know how bad it is. Where sin abounds, grace abounds on your life all the more. John sees in Revelation a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. That's a strange lamb, isn't it? The seven horns is a picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus in heaven. He has seven horns. In other words, he's saying to us today, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, his ascension to the Father, his ministry in heaven as the apostle of our faith, as the high priest. Do you know what has happened because he sits in heaven? John saw seven horns on the Lamb. He's saying, I've established my authority in the seven realms of society. I am in control. And he has seven eyes. He has vision for those seven realms. And all we need to do is to lock into his vision. Remember, I said last week the first thing about taking the mountains is to believe that God's got a plan for the mountains, he's got vision for the mountains, he's got a strategy for education, government, business, arts, and entertainment. Every area, the Lamb of God sitting in heaven today has seven horns and seven eyes, and He's ready to move. Is anyone excited about that? Turn with me to Matthew 28, 18. Jesus' command here is for you today, for me, for our church in the city of Melbourne. Listen, listen carefully. Church doesn't end today. This is a launching pad for the real stuff, which is Monday to Saturday. Okay? This is, not, this is not the end game. This is a springboard for the real stuff, which is you going out into the marketplace. Thank God it's Monday. Yeah? Say it with me. Thank God it's Monday. That's our motto. We get to go out into the world and bring the kingdom not thank God it's Friday. See, that's the mentality of people just want to check out. But we're on assignment to change our city. Matthew 28 is, is the command of Jesus to disciple nations and cities. The heart of Jesus is this city of Melbourne belongs to me. And isn't it interesting in this passage from verse 18 to 20... Where he commands us to disciple nations, on either side of this command to disciple nations are two things. So the command is sandwiched between two things. The first thing is, I have all authority. Did you hear that? Yeah. You don't have to do it in your own power. This command to disciple Melbourne is not about you being good enough. Jesus said, I've got all authority. And I've given it to you. I've given you power to change your city. And the other command on the other side, or the other promise, I should say, is that I'm never going to leave you alone. Did you hear that? He says, go and disciple Melvin, and I'm going to give you all the authority that you need. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. You will never, ever be alone. This Monday to Saturday, God is with you everywhere you go, and his power is for you and in you. This is good preaching. The Bible tells us that this city literally is hungering and thirsting and so, so longing for Jesus to come and teach it. See, it says in Haggai 2 verse 6 that, That Jesus will shake the nations and they will come to the desire of all nations. Habakkuk 2.14 says the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This city is longing to be taught the ways of the kingdom. And the promise is that in Habakkuk 2.14 that all the earth, all of Melbourne will be filled with the knowledge of God. Did you hear that? The seven sectors of society. God's going to come through you and teach the city how to function in government, how to function in business, through you. You go, Andrew, how could God use me? You're right. I I forgot about that. You don't have the education. What What did Keith speak today? Slave or free male or female, Jew or Gentile. We want to disqualify ourselves for the work of God. But the Old, the Old Testament, the New Testament, right through Scripture teaches us that God's not looking for superstars. He's just looking for someone that would say, here I am. Choose me. Use me. Here I am. He's given you power. And he's going to be with you. Moses wanted to come up with every excuse. Lord, Lord, I can't speak. Lord, pick someone else. And God had to shove a minty inside his mouth and say, be quiet, son. It's okay. I've got it covered. God wants to use you today. And I sense in my heart so many believers are full of excuses why God can't use them. And this week, God wants to use you in a profound way to shape and shift this city. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So now turn with me to Matthew 25, 31. What is God looking for in the nations? And We're going to unpack this a bit, and then I'm going to give you an example of how this works. In my Bible, the title of... Above verse 31 is the Son of Man will judge the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. And listen to this. And all the nations will be gathered to him or before him. And he will separate the nations one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand. Say right hand. And his goats on his left hand. Say left hand. hand. And as we begin to read through this passage, we begin to see that what separates nations that are sheep from goats is this. He says that as you have, as you cared for me, as you fed me, visited me in prison, as you clothed me, that's what separates the sheep from the goats. They said, when do we see you hungry and thirsty? He said, as you did this to the least of them, as you did this to my brethren, You have done it to me, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren. You did it to me. Jesus is separating sheep nations from goat nations. And what is Jesus wanting to do in the nations right now? He's preparing nations that would be sheep nations. And sheep nations are essentially this. Nations that do not persecute believers... And they do not persecute Israel. I'll show you that later. That's what a sheep nation is. And we've seen a great divide even recently when there was a vote towards Israel. The nations that sided with Israel and those that didn't. We're seeing right now, right across the world, nations that are siding with believers and those that are making it very difficult for believers. Those that are against the kingdom of God being established in every sector of society. Those that are saying to the church, you have no voice, no right to air your opinions here. We've seen that in the media just the last week. Rightly or wrongly, where the media, where there's pressure from from the established works to shut down those that want to voice their opinions about Jesus and about righteousness. So the church has got a job to do to get this nation to be a sheep nation because every nation will be judged at the end of the age, whether a sheep nation or a goat nation, whether the prevailing culture in that nation is one that honours God or dishonours God. See, it's not so much about how many people are saved. It's about whether the culture of a nation honours God and honours the principles of Of the kingdom of God. We've been fighting, as it were, the wrong battle. It's great and we should see people saved. We should have a passion for souls. But it's equally right that the church must be engaged in the city, in the nation, to shift it so it is a sheep nation and not a goat nation. That's what Jesus is going to judge. You say, is this a big deal to Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 16, verse 9. I'll show you two accounts where we see that when Jesus is is raised from the dead, he spends 40 days on the earth and Jesus has something on his mind before he goes to heaven. Let's see what it is. You ready? Mark 16 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. He appeared first. Say first to Mary. Why did he appear to Mary? Why not? Peter, John, James, Bartholomew, Nathaniel. Why Mary? Why would you appear to Mary first? Oh, it's just random. Just the way it was. Mary turned up and Jesus saw her. No, nothing's random with Jesus. You know that, don't you? He appeared first to Mary because he'd cast out seven demons from her. She's a picture for the church. That every area where the enemies come into the seven mountains... And stolen, Jesus is going to redeem. to' a picture for those who have eyes to see. Everything that the enemy stole, Jesus regained at the cross. There were seven places at the cross where Jesus shed his blood. Sorry, seven places both before the cross and on the cross where Jesus shed his blood to redeem everything that the enemy had stolen. And if you go and study the scriptures... Every place that Jesus sheds his blood, whether it's on his head, whether it's on his side, his feet, sweating great drops of blood. Every area, every time that Jesus is shedding his blood, he is redeeming that which the enemy stole. Seven gifts that the Father gives the church. Those gifts are to empower the church to take the seven mountains. So Jesus appears to Mary first because he's trying to get us to see something. That my heart, my passion, is to restore all that the enemy stole. Are you seeing this? It's not a coincidence. We read over that and think, oh, that's nice. She had seven demons and Jesus appears to her at first because, you know, she's got lots of issues. No, he's saying something to us. He's saying, that's what's on my mind. Now turn to John 21. I'll show you again. John 21 verse 1. This is the prophetic unveiling of the end time restoration of nations in this passage. I love it how, how the writers can write a story about an event. yet yeah, it can have so many hidden meanings. Don't you love that about scripture? Yeah. So I, I it. when I was younger, I'd read this passage and just think it's a story about Peter catching fish. Now, understanding that there was a message here to us today as a church. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself this way. Jesus is disclosing something of himself to us. This is the third time that Jesus manifested himself. So it's a manifestation of... Relating to the third day church, we are in the third day. One day is a thousand years since Christ died. We are now in the third day or the seventh day from creation. The earth has a seven day lease. So Jesus is unveiling to us what's about to take place in the third day. This is his third manifestation. Do you get that? All right. Simon Peter And Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, and two others were together. How many people are there? Seven. Seven. I count seven. Isn't it interesting that they're about to go fishing and we're going to see they're fishing for nations. And they're using a seven-mountain blueprint. And the people that go fishing, I want you to consider whom the writer describes. We have Nathaniel. His whole story is that there's no hidden agenda with him. We have Thomas. He's healed of a broken identity. We have Peter, James, and John. Whenever they are listed together in a story, they're a picture of the third-day church. We have two others that don't have a name. Paul Cain prophesied in the last days that God would raise up a nameless, faceless generation. Wow. We put all those together wow. and we see what God's saying about this story that God's raising up a church that have no hidden agenda. Amen. They are healed of a broken identity. Amen. They're ready for the third day. Amen. And they're a nameless, faceless generation. In other words, God's going to use everybody. It's all here in the story. There's also a lot of disciples that haven't gone fishing. They're sleeping. So don't be discouraged. Don't be elitist, but don't be discouraged that there's a number of believers in the last days that are not going to get this story. They're going to stay home and, and have a, a rapture mentality. And a rapture mentality is, God, get us out of here. It's too hard. You cannot change the nations. I don't believe you want to change the nations. I don't believe it's part of your mandate. Everything's going to get worse. My only job is to get saved and make money and then go to heaven. So there's going to be some that sleep and there's going to be some that fish. How many people want to fish? I'm glad you put your hand up. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and they got in the boat. And that night they caught nothing. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you you not have any fish yet? And they said, no, we have no fish. Think, as I'll explain, but think about nations. Think about nations. Jesus said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast the net and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. John is telling us that nations are going to be caught. Entire nations will be swept into the kingdom. You don't need to believe this. But John, he's unveiling both a literal story and a spiritual insight to what's about to take place. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Sorry, that, that yeah, it's the Lord. So John said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because John's known as the love disciple. He's the one that sees Jesus at work first. Just think about that. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work. Interesting that Peter doesn't bring the hall of fish in. John does. Those obsessed by work and activity... And not grounded in a love relationship with god aren 't part of the harvest. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish, verse ten, which you have now caught and Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of fish, a large fish, one hundred and fifty three and although there were so many the net was not torn. this was the third time verse fourteen that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we see in this story, the disciples are fishing for nations using a seven-mountain mandate. The only way the nations will be caught is if the seven disciples go with a seven-mountain mandate. The nations will not be transformed by just seeing people born again. They will come to a people that understand that Jesus... ...wants to impact every sector of society. Uh, My urge to you today is to find a mountain to function in. Remember last week we talked about... if, ...if you can't go, then begin to pray over a mountain. I prayed last week for James Packer. And you see the next week there was activity in his workplace... And so we continue to pray over these men and women. We begin to get involved in these mountains. If it's government, get involved in government. Find a place to serve. From Monday to Saturday, we are the salt of the earth. We must have a seven mountain mandate to change the world. So seven disciples go out there. And it says in this story, it will be dark when they start. So what does that mean? It it means we don't understand. We, we, we get a little glimpse of what God wants to do, but a lot of it doesn't make sense. And when I first began to pray into this year, a number of years ago, I, I remember I told you that story. I said, Lord, I'm talking to other leaders and believers about this, but nobody, it seems, in my circle of friends, had faith to believe that you could change a nation, that you wanted to be involved in every mountain of society. And I wrote about this in my book. It's when God led me outside my house and I had the encounter with the owl that wouldn't go away. And God began to show me, and it was a season when all these owls begin to appear on jumpers and shirts and, and homeware. And God was saying that I'm giving you the, the ability to see what others can't see because owls can see in the dark better than anything. They've got this amazing ability to see what others can't see. So God's giving the ability to the church to see even though it's dark. And we don't have it fully articulated how it's going to work. Well, how can we change the city? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going fishing anyway. I don't understand exactly how God's going to shift this city and government and education and, and all these things. I don't know, but I've got to get it in my boat because I've got this sense then we've got to go fishing. Yeah. And I've got six other brethren with me that want to change nations. We're going out, we just don't know how to catch them. But you've got to be in the water to catch fish. Yeah. And as they start, they fish and they catch nothing. So don't say to me, well, you've been preaching about this and talking about this for years now and nothing's happened. I say, yes, I know, it's dark. And I don't know where the fish are, but I'm in my boat because I sense it's where God wants us to be. And the first part of this is creating a conversation that says, you know what, God wants his church in the boat, out on the water, looking for fish. Because you can't get instructions from the Lord how to catch fish if you're on the shore asleep. God only speaks to those who are in the boat. Yeah. That was a good point. The command comes from Jesus to cast the net out so that countries that are destined to become sheep nations will come into the kingdom. Do you notice he says cast the net? Matthew thirteen forty seven says the kingdom of God is like a... I gave you a clue. Like a What? A net, yes, that's right. The kingdom of God is like a net. And Jesus says to them from the shore, cast the net out. I'm going to do a work. It's a work of the kingdom. Cast the net out on the right side. The right side is the side of favor, anointing, breakthrough and blessing. But it's also the side where the sheep are they've been casting on the wrong side they've been living a gospel message a salvation message not a kingdom message so they begin to cast their net on the right side of the boat good work this is a mission that is done listen before they see Jesus They haven't seen Jesus. They can hear him, but they can't see him. That tells us that this activity is going to take place before Jesus appears. See, all this is taking place before Jesus returns. They can't see him, but they can hear his instructions. Verse 7, The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And before Jesus returns, there's going to come an awakening for the church to hear the voice of the Lord. Put your hands on your ears now. It's not Simon says. Um, pray, Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear the instructions that you are shouting to us from the shore. We believe that you are in heaven and that you are returning soon. So I speak to everyone who can hear my voice, both in this congregation, on live stream, YouTube, wherever they might be. I say, you have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. The same anointing that was on John, you filled his heart with love. He was caught up in the Spirit to capture your heart and return with the revelation of the scrolls being loosed. I release that anointing that was on John the Apostle, the third day disciple who wrote 1, 2, and 3 John. I release that anointing upon your people to hear the instructions from the very mouth of Jesus. Father, we say right now we have ears to hear. Lord, you have instructions that will enable us to go from catching no fish being fruitless to being barren you have instructions that will totally shift us into a place of fruitfulness and harvest harvesting nations large nations our net being full you have instructions that will make all the difference one word from God changes everything so we say Lord we have ears to hear what you are saying. I release the spirit of prophecy and insight into your heart. I release vision and revelation to you. I loose that over you now. I break every spirit that would try to dull your ears, that would try to confuse you. I release the spirit of prophecy and insight into you. Right now in Jesus name. Amen. 153 sheep, 153 people had encounters with Jesus, so one writer says it's the number for the sons of God. Literally, the sons of God. If you add up the number, that in the Greek it adds up to the number one hundred and fifty-three, wow. the sons of God. But here's what's interesting: it's both individuals but nations. In Exodus four twenty-two. God said of Israel, "Listen, Israel is my son, my firstborn." So it indicates that Israel, the nation, is God's child, but it's not only God's, the only child, because he says, Israel is my firstborn, indicating there are many more. So these fish are pictures of nations, of God's children. He's saying, I'm going to pursue nations as their father, and my glory will fill the earth. I I will not relent. I will not let the enemy have his way. You need to see it today. God is adamant that the nations belong to Him. And I believe here that there's an indication that at least 153 nations are earmarked by God to be sheep nations. How about Australia? I'll say it again. How about Australia? Let's not take it for granted because we were born... As the great Southland of the Holy Spirit, that's a done deal. If the church stays asleep and doesn't fish, we won't be a sheep nation. Psalm seventy-two, eleven says, "All the kings will fall down before him; all the nations will serve him." It goes on. This is a psalm that was written, I believe, by David, penned by Solomon. It was his last words. You need to read Psalm seventy-two and declare it. As you're praying for our nation, Lord, you said all the nations will serve you. This is not in the millennium because it goes on to say the poor and the needy and those that have no helper, you will rescue. doesn't sound like the millennium. It sounds like now. We need to be rescued now. He says all the nations will serve you. God, we declare over this nation of Australia. That we will serve you in every sector of society. There will be men and women that will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we shall follow the principles of the word of the Lord. That's what made this nation great. And we'll keep it great. Amen. Amen. Very quickly, I've got 10 minutes left or five, depending on how gracious you are. Two examples of of people that have changed a nation. I've got heaps of them, but let me give you two. Because I'm going to show you that it's one person can change a nation because they know God is with them and God has given them great power. Are you ready? Very quickly. John Wesley. He was born at a time of great darkness in England. It was a time where children of the poor didn't go to schools. In fact, it was reported that children at the age of four and five were working in factories, and mines, working often 12 hours a day. Imagine that, a four-year-old kid. They valued horses more than children, so they'd send the children down the mines in case they collapsed because they were able to get in into little places, and they would work them night and day. This was the time that Wesley was born, a time when the church had turned a deaf ear to society. It wasn't interested in changing their world. But God had prepared a nation changer called John Wesley. They were kicked out of the Conservative Church, you may have read about that, who had no time for their emotional preaching and their joyous singing. So he went to the poor and for nineteen years he preached. He was stoned, they threw manure at him manure at him, tomatoes, they dragged him before courts, they beat him up, they burnt houses where he stayed, they gave him hell. But he described the work of the Holy Spirit that as he began to preach, crowds of people would turn up and God would literally transform whole communities. He trained 10,000 leaders riding 250,000 miles on horseback. And by 19, sorry, 1798, the Methodists numbered 100,000 people in England they studied the Bible and they applied biblical principles to their life. They believed God had called them to change their nation and to spread holiness. What was interesting is that this word holiness, he, he described it as the wholeness of the gospel, spirit, soul, and body. He opened up places to dispense medicine to the poor. He studied medicine himself so he could help the poor. He opened up shelters for widows. He attacked slavery long before Wilberforce was around. He established workers' rights, safety, women's rights, prison reform, reform to the nursing profession. On and on it went. He changed an entire nation. One man. Say with me, one man. You can do that. You can do that in the city. William Carey, probably one of my favourites. His motto was expect great things, things from God, and attempt great things for God. 1793. Can you imagine being on a boat for four months with a, a wife that didn't want to go? That'd be hard enough. And with, I think he had four children, I can't remember. I think it was four, but one of them was very young, I think three months old. Four months on a boat, ends up in India. India. His background is a shoemaker and a pastor and sort of a self-taught linguist. He arrives in a nation that's steeped in Hinduism. It's, 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 it's a religion that has the elite and everyone else is on, it's at the bottom of the pile. A culture of, of bribery was right across the nation. You know, if you lent money, they would charge you anywhere from 36 to 100%. This is the nation he went to. It was dark. There were no human rights. There was uh, lots of uh, atrocities, female, infant side, child, marriage. This was the culture that he came into. So he began the task of changing a nation. He believed that God would establish his kingdom on earth and the first signs of this would appear in a social and political setting. He understood that nothing but the gospel could... Change this dark place, believing that the real battle belonged in the mind. So he had to change the way the Indian culture thought. So listen to how he did that. In family, he lobbied to see the killing of unwanted babies outlawed, and he succeeded in 1804. What an amazing thing that is. One man changed the law. He got rid of the practice of burning widows alive in 1829, so another 23 five years later. In religion, he started the Baptist Church of India. He trained pastors, translated the Bible into 40 different languages so the Indians could read. Education, he started dozens of schools, I believe over 100. For all children at at every level and for women, he started the first lending library of India. In arts, he promoted literature by translating and publishing Indian classics. He actually wrote Bengali gospel ballads because you know that the Indians love to dance and to sing. In media, he set up the first printing press and taught them how to print. He taught them how to make paper. He established the first newspaper in all of Asia, bringing about lots of the social reform in economy. He introduced the idea of the savings bank and he changed the interest rates and brought in foreign investment. One man, one man. In technology, he introduced the first steam engine. In medicine, he led the campaign for humane treatment for lepers. In science, well, he was an amazing man. He started horticultural societies. He taught them about astronomy because they were steeped in in bondage to astrology. He was an incredible man in the realm of economy. In government, he faced incredible opposition. In fact, his nation didn't want him there. It was outlawed for missionaries to come to India. In fact, the British had been there, I believe, since 1600 and, and had d- done nothing to change the nation. He came against their wish and began to work in government. He stayed in India for 41 years, never returning to his motherland, and died there. One man changed that nation. Yes, there were things that were left undone, but one man changed the course Of a nation. Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Turn with me again and we'll finish. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. Brace yourselves for a shock. For I'm going to work a work in your days that though it were told you, you would not believe it. India, I'm going to work at work in your days that is going to totally shock you. No more widows being burnt. No more lepers being mistreated. Babies allowed to live. Education. Social reform. Britain, I'm going to do a work in your life. Melbourne, I'm going to do a work in your life. It's going to astound you. Social reform. Education changed. He says, "I'm going to astound you, so you better brace yourselves church for a shock. Because somebody here today is going to rise up like Carey, like Wesley, and change your city. Somebody will. Somebody will. Somebody will. So we thank you, Father, today that you are here. And your heart is for the nations. And Lord, we're in that boat and it's dark. And our ears are attuned to where we might cast the net to catch our city, our nation, and the nations of the world. We thank you, Lord, today that... You're standing by the shore and you're, you can see us. You can see us coming towards the end of the age. And you've got a word for us. How to catch the youth of this generation. How to catch the business people for this generation. How to catch the education system for this generation. You're speaking, Lord. And so we thank you today, Lord, for all that you've said and done this day. And we say, Lord, Count us in. Like John, we want to have the ears to hear the command of the Lord. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear your voice. Build within our hearts a grid for greatness that believes in our heart that you want to to save entire nations, that a nation can have the government of heaven, in every sector because you called us to pray this prayer Lord let it be on earth as it is in heaven our Father who is in heaven let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven it is your desire it is your prayer so we ask Lord that as we leave this week to go out this week from Monday to Saturday thank you that you've got a word for us You've got a strategy for us. You've got, Lord, places for us to cast the net. Lord, as we go throughout the week, you've got strategies to reveal to us. We thank you for that, Lord. I pray that every person that's heard this word would be inspired, would be so challenged, and that this revelation would burn in their hearts this week in your mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.